following was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us and your goodness to this church. As we come together to celebrate as a small group, we also are coming together to learn and to exalt you as we extol your works in this land. Lord, we thank you for all those who have participated in the work here at Antioch over these past 180-odd years. And we thank you, Lord, for maintaining a faithful, old-school Presbyterian witness on this property and in this way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So our plan today is to have two historical addresses. We're so glad you could join us for this. Um, And our first historical address will kind of be the macro picture of South Carolinian Presbyterianism, the story of South Carolina's Presbyterians, uh, delivered by Mr. Mel Duncan, who is stated clerk of Calvary Presbytery and ruling elder at Second Presbyterian Church. A relationship that I'm going to highlight a bit in my talk, which will be our second address, on the story of Old Antioch Church. Um, I will be um, highlighting... I would say different anecdotes, vignettes, as well as um, significant landmarks in the history of the church. There's much more material than I could possibly cover in an hour. But one of the things I do want to highlight is our close relationship with Second Presbyterian Church. Not only today, but even 100 years ago, I unearthed some interesting details that I'm going to bring to bear. Everything we're doing today will be recorded as well as live streamed, and so it will be available for posterity. And we're also going to uh, recognize... Uh, though he couldn't be here with us this morning. I tried to get him to come, but he, he was kind of back and forth. We're going to recognize the long service of Pastor Charles Champion, who labored here in his uh, partial retirement for 26 years, longest-serving pastor in Antioch's history. And so we'll recognize um, his contributions to the church uh, at the end of my address, and then we'll have uh, a lunch of fried chicken and salad and seasonal fruit and, and things here on the grounds. Anyone who's wanting to join us will be able to do so. But if you have to get going, I understand it is a beautiful day here in the upstate today. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Mr. Mel Duncan to the old Antioch pulpit to uh, give us a talk on South Carolina's Presbyterians. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Mel. Uh, oftentimes when I leave the a building, I'll thank God for a people and for a place. And the Lord oftentimes uses particular peoples and particular places uh, to bountifully bless uh, his kingdom. And Antioch is one of those places. Antioch is a people and a place with a continuous story of 180 years of God's grace. And it's wonderful to see God blessing Antioch again. I think there is great hope in looking into the providential history of this church as well as our own people and our own places. And so I want to begin by uh, talking a little bit about the context of old Antioch. About 160 years ago, uh, a man named George Howe came to a place called Presbyterian Church. It's a congregation just down the road and is the most immediate predecessor uh, mother church to Antioch. 
and Dr. George Howe is responsible for most of what we know about South Carolina Presbyterian history in detail. He was for many years a professor of history at Old Columbia Seminary and collected and wrote on the story of South Carolina Presbyterianism. And so I want to begin with Dr. Howe today. There is nothing more common, and this again was from a dress he gave at Nazareth on an anniversary related to that church, to thoughtful and civilized man than the disposition to inquire into the past and to trace the race from which we sprang to its earliest beginnings. But whoever attempts it, whether he be plebeian or king, will find his ancestry lost in some barbarian tribe, springing from others as savage as itself, which fill that prehistoric period between Japheth, the son of Noah, and modern times. Even the chosen seed, whose line can be traced the farthest back, ends in a race of idolaters. And proud we justly are of our immediate ancestor, whether Saxon, Gaul, or Gael, we shall find ourselves to have sprung from pagan huntsmen, herdsmen, or fierce warriors, who remained such till they were tamed and softened by the true religion and humanized by the culture of letters. So before we go plumbing the depths of how great we are, or how great we think we are or were, let us remember at the beginning we were nothing but apart from the grace of God. And so as we dive into the story of Old Antioch, let me begin by talking about uh, how the thesis of my talk today is modeled on the idea that God used a particular set of English-speaking peoples to migrate to the New World, to migrate to a place like Antioch in, in western Spartanburg County at the crossroads of Greenville and Spartanburg, as your pastor says, to uniquely bring the gospel of grace to this part of God's world. The English-speaking peoples have a Christian tradition that goes back some thousands of years. We tend to associate the arrival of Christianity in Britain with the mission of Augustine in 597, <clears throat> but there were traces of Christianity in Great Britain as far back as the first century. When Rome uh, leaves Britain, it looked as if paganism might cover the land again and a new set of invaders arrived, Angles, Saxons, and Jutes. Yet somehow Christianity not only survived, but it endured. And on the picture you see here is a rock called the Baravada Stone. And it was written by a, a Christian who lived in Britain. It may be the oldest example of a Christian in Britain. And it may actually be older than the fifth century. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, near the Isle of Whithorn, not far from the Roman wall, we see, we praise the Lord, Latinist, age 35, and his daughter, aged four. This grandson was put in place by uh, the grandson of Beravatus, who set up this memorial. A Christian name, or a name that is associated with the Christian tradition, the grandson of a name associated with the pagan tradition in Old Britain testifying to the glory and grace of God at work on that place. Uh, this uh, stone was discovered in 1891, and it's an example of a Christian memorial, an example of God reaching that particular place 
early on in the history of Britain. The next slide you see is a picture of Iona, that great center of Christianity in the west of Scotland, which for over 700 years was at the heart of what came to be known as Celtic Christianity. It lay within the old Gallic kingdom of Dalriada, and it was a place not only of scholarship but of missionary endeavors. Uh, missionaries from Iona made it as far as the Volga River and into the south of Germany uh, with the gospel. It was a place where God used uh, Christianity to be uh, safely stored but also exported to an increasingly dark age. Iona is an example of the way Christian, Celtic Christianity was something of a bridge between early Christianity and later expressions and it shows that the gospel existed in that age apart from the Roman claim of uh, being the only true church. Uh, those of you who may be familiar with the book How the Iris Saved Civilization uh, would know that the idea that God used this particular uh, cultural group to preserve many of the manuscripts and the ideas of Christianity and Western thought. Um, I would also encourage you to be aware of a, of a more relevant book, uh, How the Scots Invented the Modern World, uh, in which the thesis is uh, something similar uh, and yet different. Uh, the next slide is a, is, a, is a reference, is a gesture to our uh, Reformation heritage. Antioch is a Reformation church. And as we think about our history as a church, we need to reference Martin Luther. It was 1521, and Martin Luther was being summoned to testify before the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire at the Diet of Worms. The examiner asked Luther, will you retract your views of the Christian faith? And he famously said, if I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, and if my judgment is not in the way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me, amen. And so it is the Reformation reoriented the West around the gospel and around a biblical understanding of grace and God and man and sin. And from Luther's uh, Reformation sprung many different little revolutions in different countries in which Protestant Christianity emerged. We see here a picture of Western Europe during the time of the Reformation and the different colors kind of shows the different impacts of different uh, Protestant groups. There was Lutheranism emerging in in Germany and the northern European nations. There were uh, Calvinistic endeavors in France and Switzerland and even into modern-day uh, Czech Republic. Uh, in England, there became something of a via media, uh, an attempt to bridge the gap between Rome and Protestant Christianity. And then through the work of Knox, you see the spread of the gospel in uh, to Scotland. And so it was that during the 16th century, God began gathering again his remnant into a new, newly reformed church. <clears throat> Most notably, we're connected to the tradition of reform associated with John Knox, the great uh, reformer and, by God's grace, the father of the uh, reformed church of Scotland. He was a Scottish minister. 
He was a theologian, a writer. Uh, he is the founder of the Church of Scotland, believed to have been educated at the University of St. Andrews, worked as a priest. He was influenced uh, by his mentor, George Wishart, a remarkable family name. Uh, he joined uh, early on the movement to uh, support the reform of the Church of Scotland. He was exiled for his beliefs. <clears throat> At some point he goes to Switzerland where he is uh, tutored and led by John Calvin. He comes back uh, to work in the, with English uh, Reformed folk. At one point he's a chaplain to young Edward VI. Uh, he meets and marries his first wife, uh, Marjorie Bowes, and uh, the late Queen Elizabeth's mother was a direct descendant of John Knox. When Mary Tudor ascended the throne of England, uh, he left the country, and uh, eventually on his return, Knox leads the Protestant Reformation in Scotland. He helps write a new confession of faith and ecclesiastical order for the newly created church, which parts of which live in our own polity tradition today. About a hundred years later comes one of the most significant events uh, to Presbyterians, and that is the, the, the Parliament calling the great Westminster Assembly uh, of Divines, called by the Long Parliament to reform the Church of England, originally given the charge of fixing the 39 Articles. Uh, they soon set that aside and they produced the Westminster Confession of Faith along with a larger and shorter uh, catechism. I noticed yesterday I think was the anniversary of the approval of the larger catechism I think by Parliament. Uh, the assembly was made up of 30 laymen, 20 from the House of Commons and 10 from the House of Lords, 121 English clergymen. Each English county or shire was asked to send its two best theologian statesmen, churchmen, and then uh, famously a delegation of Scottish Presbyterian commissioners who did not vote but had the privilege of the floor and we're grateful they did. Although uh, all were Calvinists in doctrine, the assembly represented different opinions on church government. Uh, there were Episcopalian, Erastian, Independent, and Presbyterian perspectives meeting over a thousand times from 1643 to 1649. Uh, it continued to meet occasionally for a few years later. Uh, its works, while it did not unite the uh, British world under one theological document, did become the basis for millions of confessing Christians' understanding of the gospel and the best explanation of the Bible. So in the context of this time period, there's a cultural development which is important to the story of Antioch. And that is, uh, there began, during the, well, in some ways it began long before this time, but particularly during the reign of King James I of Great Britain, who was known in Scotland as King James VI, there began a policy of uh, colonization, a national strategy of colonization. Um, I have called this in another setting a lawful invasion, but nevertheless, uh, the, the Brits settle uh, Northern Ireland and parts of, of Ireland, but particularly Northern Ireland in what's known as Ulster, uh, and they people that land, uh, and, and particularly they take land that had been forfeited uh, by folks uh, who had been disloyal to the British monarchy. And so it is the land was colonized from its native Gallic chiefs 
by English-speaking folk from the south of Scotland and largely the north of England. And this group crosses the Irish Channel into Ireland and perpetuates a new kind of fiercely Protestant culture uh, and, uh, and, and the tensions created from that are alive as well today. But this Northern Irish Ulster religious settlement sets the pattern for a settlement into the world. And we see that in the next slide. A hundred years or so after the settlement of Ireland, uh, we see Ulster migration to the New World. Uh, beginning in 1715 till roughly the start of the revolution, about a quarter of a million Ulster Scots, or in America we would call them Scots-Irish, immigrate to the New World. <clears throat> they come, <clears throat> excuse me, they come to four primary ports of entry. They go to, to Boston, they go to New York, but famously they go to Philadelphia and to Charleston. Those are the four great cities of colonial America. They, may, they went mainly to Philadelphia. And uh, it was in Philadelphia that it was said that, it, that the Scottish accent was perhaps the most heard accents in the street, uh, streets of Philadelphia. Uh, Scots-Irish Americans are American descendants of Presbyterian and Ulster descent, largely from the Protestant uh, province of Ulster, uh, who migrate during this uh, 18th century. Millions of Americans, perhaps 10% of America, uh, has uh, an, an ancestral identity with this particular New World migration group. The term Scots-Irish is used most commonly in America, and this particular immigrant group is the first group, sociologists have said, to identify themselves culturally as Americans, and I think that's also a significant thing to note. So there were, along with this people group, who were fiercely Calvinistic, uh, there were early uh, settlements or attempts to create churches in the New World. Uh, the Jamaica Church in the New York area uh, it goes back to 1650. Uh, the uh, Edisto Island, uh, Carolina, there's a Presbyterian church perhaps 1685. And then you begin Presbyterian churches emerge in Philadelphia. Uh, these early movements of Presbyterianism were fueled and watered particularly by Francis McKimmy. Uh, there was a, a civil war going on in Ireland. There always was a civil war going on in Ireland. And some people in Maryland and Virginia wrote to the Presbytery of Logan, which is, was the local governing body of a particular place in Ireland, and that said, would you send us a missionary? Would you send us a pastor? And Francis McKimmy answered the call. And he plants several church in the Delaware, Maryland, Virginia uh, area and is uniquely used by God to not only establish churches uh, but uh, famously to help organize the first presbytery. Now all of us know that an independent Presbyterian is an oxymoron. And so it is, uh, Presbyterians um, <clears throat> assign uh, great 
value biblical authority to Presbyterian churches acting cooperatively and connectionally together. And so uh, McKimmy is uh, famously credited with being uh, the father of American Presbyterians. And let me thank Sean Lucas for giving me some of these slides that I'm, I'm going to use in this section here. Uh, in 1706, uh, a group of men agreed to meet annually to consult the proper measures for advancing religion and propagating Christianity in our various stations. And so began the journey of American Presbyterian uh, Presbyterians. And that culminates about 75 years later, uh, after the, the American Revolution had concluded with a new denomination uh, known as the Presbyterian Church uh, in the United States of America. The Presbyteries of the New World, in, or at least from North America, come together in Philadelphia uh, in the same uh, era that uh, the men were writing the United States Constitution. Presbyterians were gathered uh, to put together a national Presbyterian church. Uh, the church had 16 presbyteries. Uh, there were three synods, uh, which would soon become four. Uh, John Witherspoon helped to create the first book of church order. Uh, and after three years of um, intense debate within synod, uh, the, the plan was adopted. The first book of church order was published in 1788. The first general assembly meets in Philadelphia in 1789. So back from the theological story to the cultural story, uh, along this same time period, the era of uh, uh, the 18th century, the, the frontier opens up in America. There are uh, uh, Episcopal church states in the South. There are uh, congregational states in the uh, New England area. The mid-Atlantic states were uh, a mix. Uh, they, there was more religious freedom in Pennsylvania perhaps than anywhere. But the frontier was for whoever who would take her. And so a lot of these Ulster Scots who a generation before had gone from Ulster to America began seeing the promise of freedom on the frontier. And so uh, a road came to be uh, developed known as the Great Wagon Road. And it was it was a place that connected the colonies uh, through journey in the backcountry. And many of these quarter million Ulster Scots who come into uh, the New World through the north began working their way south and west into new parts of America that uh, are unpeopled. Now, they, it wasn't exclusively Ulster Scots who came down the, the wagon road. There were German, there were Welsh, there were Dutch. But it was primarily this clannish, restless, fiercely independent Ulster people who come all the way down the wagon road into modern-day South Carolina. And then we see the Ulster Scots emerging in South Carolina first in a place called Old Waxhall. Now, Old Waxhall is a, one of the places I would really encourage you to visit. This is the church that Andrew Jackson, the sixth president of the United States, grew up in. His parents are buried there. This is the church that after the, the uh, uh, Revolutionary War, 
that the Presbytery of South Carolina is established in. Uh, this is the church that served as a hospital during the Revolution. Uh, those of you who know your American Revolutionary history and know the name Bannister Tarleton, uh, that villainous uh, liver puddlian, uh, th this is a church that cared for, for soldiers after battles he was involved in. <clears throat> this is the mother church of Presbyterianism in Upper South Carolina and is the place where the Presbytery for the whole state is established after the Revolutionary War. From this church, a number of settlers come through because they would have been uh, Calvinistic Presbyterians, and from Waxhall they began to descend into the other parts of uh, what was then the back country, and then we come to Old Nazareth, which is the most direct uh, mother church to Old Antioch. Uh, Nazareth is established in 1765. It's the church. It's the oldest Presbyterian church in Spartanburg County. Uh, this is a remarkable example of, uh, and, and it still is uh, a Presbyterian church today. It's, it's still in the USA, sadly, but uh, it, its history is a good story to tell what Presbyterian churches would have looked like in those days. Scotch Irish settlers would have come into the Tiger Valley, uh, Tiger River Valley, uh, in the 1750s. Uh, these uh, early settlers came uh, to establish the Tiger River Congregation in 1765. Uh, this particular church started a school, a hospital. Uh, it started a children's outreach ministry. We would call it today. Uh, the Reedville uh, Female College and Male Academy was originally founded at Nazareth, and the church was famous for its association with the Reverend R.H. Reed, for whom the town of Reedville and the Reedville Presbyterian Church is named. And uh, this church would have been a center of learning and gospel endeavor in this uh, part of the world. And then that brings us to Old Antioch. Uh, this community is now known as Cashville. It probably wouldn't have even had a name when it was begun. Uh, my guess is that the Antioch Church largely owes its founding to both the Nazareth Church and the Fairview Church. And it seems to have emerged out of a prior congregation called Old Ennery, which we simply don't know a whole lot about. It's interesting, the name that your elders, or I should say the description uh, that your elders have called uh, Antioch sitting at the edge of Greenville and Spartanburg is something that has been uh, very radically true for its whole history. Uh, this is an interesting little region between two bigger communities, uh, but has always existed here apart and has always been used by God to, to minister to this people in this place. All right, let's go back to theological things. Let's kind of do a massive overview uh, of what's going on in the Presbyterian world in American history. So in the 18th century, uh, the, the issues related to Presbyterian churches would have been, how do you find a minister for a church at Old Antioch? Uh, other issues would have been the impact of the Great Awakening. If you go down to Lawrence County, uh, the old Duncan's Creek Presbyterian Church, there is a division between Duncan's Creek Presbyterian Church over the introduction of Isaac Watts' psalm book. Uh, even in, in 
distant South Carolina Great Awakening created tensions, largely good tensions, but tensions within existing churches. And then there was the whole prospect of how do you organize a church in the new world. Uh, These were the great challenges of the 18th century. In the 19th century, there were theological tensions related uh, to early expressions of liberal Christianity, uh, which resulted in a divide between the church of an old and a new school. And then there was this little thing called the war between the states, in which the nation engaged in a violent struggle over the meaning of America. In the 20th century, there were uh, issues related to modernity, and fundamentalism as a critique of modernity. There were still geographical divisions, cultural expressions of the church, and then that all sort of feeds into the birth of PCA in 1973. So let me move briefly through this section by giving you some of the highlights of the more recent history, known to all of you, but important to the history of Antioch nonetheless. The fundamentalist modernist controversy in, the, in, in America in the 20th century had a northern expression and a southern expression. And perhaps the best expression of a response to the modernist controversy was the life and ministry of J. Gresham Machen. Uh, this is the 100th anniversary of his famous book, Christianity and Liberalism. Uh, this is the man who leads to the creation of Westminster Seminary, the Independent Board of Presbyterian Foreign Missions, and eventually the creation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, out of the Northern Presbyterian Church. In the South, there were similar discussions about modernity, but they tended to be uh, centered on issues related to to things like evolution, to the social gospel, to neo-Orthodoxy. Conservatives in the church tried through the process of church discipline, uh, through the process of of ordinary Presbyterian churchmanship, uh, to attack certain leaders, uh, false teachers within the church. And there were famous uh, ecclesiastical trials and concerns, uh, all of which failed uh, ultimately. And then we see um, the beginning of of the, the movements which lead to the start of the PCA, the Southern Presbyterian Journal, now known as World Magazine, or at least the latest expression of it is, uh, the Presbyterian Evangelistic Fellowship, which was an attempt to create a missionary society that would, uh, that would foster genuine evangelical and Presbyterian ministry. Uh, Concerned Presbyterians was a lay organization, and then famously Presbyterian Churchmen United. All four of these groups merged together to, in a sense, argue against the liberalizing trends within the old PCUS, and uh, they defeated a merger with the Northern Church in 1954, uh, but ultimately resolved that there has to be something more than just um, um, fighting within the PCUS, and so there's a uh, Paul Settle has described that there were three groups of people by the early 70s. There were the Sooners, they were the Keepers, and they were the Planners. And it was basically the different attitudes towards starting a new denomination. Some wanted to go and start one now. Others wanted to stay and fight. Others wanted to plan to go. Eventually, all of the, these tensions come together. And in 1973, uh, the Presbyterian Church is formed uh, on the anniversary of the founding of the PCUS, 
uh, but this time at Briarwood Church in Birmingham. This leads to the formation of the PCA. About 260 congregations uh, send uh, delegates uh, from churches representing about 40,000 members and they began a new denomination at Briarwood Presbyterian Church, originally known as the National Presbyterian Church, uh, but due to a lawsuit, uh, we changed our name to the Presbyterian Church in America. In 1982, the PCA receives the RPCES and along with it uh, receives Covenant College and Covenant Seminary. Uh, the PCA has um, an administrative building in Lawrenceville, Georgia. It has large program ministries uh, through Mission to the World, Mission to North America, uh, the Committee on Discipleship Ministries and RUF, and then a number of other ministries which specially serve the courts of the church. In South Carolina, a statewide presbytery is formed known as Calvary Presbytery. In the mid-1980s, that presbytery is divided between upper and lower. In the mid-1990s, the presbytery is divided between sort of the western upstate and then the Rock Hill, Charlotte area. And today, Calvary Presbytery represents uh, about 42 churches or mission works in 13 South Carolina upcountry counties. Uh, about 10,000 uh, communicant members of our church. We have about 125 teaching elder ministers. We have about 300 ruling elders. My guess is we have about 600 deacons. And uh, the church uh, is uh, doing okay by God's grace these days. Uh, Antioch has always been a part of the PCA and has always been a part of Calvary Presbytery. All right, the third section I want to point to you today are some South Carolina places you should know related to the Presbyterian story. Like many things to do with South Carolina, uh, you almost have to start in Charleston. And so uh, the, the holy city of Charleston was home to many famous Presbyterian churches. I'm going to show you a few of them in a minute. But it was also home to the Charleston Independent Presbytery. And for, for about a hundred years, uh, this presbytery began by Archibald Stobo, existed as its own expression of Presbyterianism uh, within the, the region. Um, Archibald Stobo is an interesting figure. He had been sent by the Church of Scotland to be a, a minister in the ill-begotten uh, Darien scheme uh, in Central America. The, the Scottish uh, nobles wanted to get into the empire building business in the late 16th, early 17th century. And someone thought, wouldn't it be a great idea to build a canal between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans and we could revolutionize the, the spice trade and, and, and cut our, the journeys off by a month. And it was a great idea that it was just 300 years ahead of its time. And the Scots uh, sent about uh, three or 4,000 people over two different journeys and they attempted the process of digging a canal. I can only imagine what that would have been like. And um, it, it was a fantastic idea, uh, but the colony uh, dissolved because of a variety of reasons, leadership, re material, morale. Uh, it didn't help that the English boycotted their ability to trade in the Caribbean, even though they were supposedly connected to one another culturally. 
and the colony collapsed. And Stobo uh, gets on a boat. He's one of the fortunate ones who was able to escape Darien. And a storm blows him into Charleston Harbor. And someone in Charleston had a a Presbyterian family in Charleston uh, said, we've got a daughter that needs to get married and we want a Presbyterian minister. And they heard there was a Presbyterian minister on the boat. And so he leaves the boat, he comes to Charleston, he marries the girl, and he stays. And uh, he stays in Charleston for the rest of his life planting Presbyterian churches. Uh, Greg Singer, who was an early professor at um, Greenville Seminary, thought that there was actually a presbytery in Charleston before there was one in Philadelphia. And I've never been able to prove that, though I've tried a lot to find evidence of that. Um, But he plants five churches in the 1690s, early 1700s, or early 1700s in the Charleston area and is really the father of South Carolina Presbyterianism. But Charleston is where you need to go to begin your understanding of of Presbyterianism. Now, the Circular Church is a congregational church in Charleston. It's hardly even a Christian church anymore. But it is a descendant of the second Christian congregation in South Carolina history. We've all been to Charleston, or at least I hope we've all been to Charleston and seen the beautiful St. Philip's Episcopal Church, which is now part of the conservative evangelical Anglican tradition in the Low Country, God be praised. But the second church founded after uh, that was was a union church. It was a church for uh, non-conforming dissenters in the Charleston area, and it was known as the White Meeting House. And that White Meeting House eventually becomes the circular church, so named because of the architecture of the design. It's a striking building uh, physically. The White Meeting House was a fascinating evangelical mismatch of Presbyterians, Dutch Reformed, even some Lutherans, some Baptists, And it existed in that form until about the 1730s when the Presbyterians pulled out, getting tired of the the polity irregularity to be known as First Scots Church in Charleston. But the Circular Church is a remarkable church. And I want to say this is the home church of Palmer, I want to say, but I need to go back and look at that. All right, the next slide shows a second Presbyterian church, uh, a famous building in Charleston, uh, the home of Thomas Smythe or Thomas Smith, uh, a well-known South Carolina Presbyterian teacher. Uh, His son would be a charter member of Second Pres Greenville, my home congregation. And he was one of these ministers who was also very involved in the promotion of Presbyterian history and the denomination actually designated his church uh, as, as a historic, the first church to be uh, by the Presbyterian denomination in America. Now, in the Low Country tradition, you also had uh, the Huguenot tradition. And there still remains one existing Huguenot congregation. That is, the Huguenots were French speaking Calvinist who fled to America after the revocation of religious freedom, something called the Edict of Nantes, was pulled back. And many, many uh, Frenchmen, probably 5,000 or so, immigrate into the Low Country, particularly Charleston, and they bring with them 
uh, their French-speaking understanding of the gospel of grace. And they form a church known as the Huguenot Church, uh, which continues today, and ceremonial at least, uh, continues to use the liturgy of the French Calvinistic Church. Famously in Charleston, you also had the Zion uh, congregation. Uh, a number of black members of Second Presbyterian Church were uh, able to form a church at the Anson, on Anson Street, and then, and then later a new building was built uh, called the Zion Presbyterian Church, largely through the ministry of uh, John uh, L. Gerardo and uh, John Adger. And uh, it was said that at the time of the beginning of the Civil War, this was the largest church in South Carolina. And it was, uh, while there was a white pastor, there were African Americans who served in leadership and took care of the spiritual condition of that building and is a remarkable part of the Presbyterian story. Staying in the Low Country, you actually see an early architectural expression uh, at the Johns Island Presbyterian Church, a church also planted by Stobo that goes uh, to the early 1700s. I think the building is 1719. And you see simple Protestant Reformation architecture, the pulpit at the center. Uh, there was uh, galleries that were used for slaves. But you also see the, the downstairs, the old, the old pews. You bought your pew and you never had to worry about somebody sitting in your pew as long as you paid your pew tax. If you go a little bit further out from Charleston, there are wonderful places like Bethesda Church in Camden. Uh, this was, uh, Camden was an early backcountry center of South Carolina civilization. Uh, this is the town that William F. Buckley spent some of his youth in. And uh, this particular church, the, the cornerstone was laid by the Marquis de Lafayette when he came through visiting while he was working on his famous Democracy in America text. And uh, this particular church produced generals which served America in both the, um, in, in this, well, it, it's a great little town. There were six South Carolina Civil War generals uh, produced out of Camden. If you go from Camden, you come to Columbia. Uh, the oldest Christian church in Columbia, and what is in many ways the mother church now to Presbyterianism in South Carolina is First Pres. Uh, it is uniquely used by God in a variety of ways and has been a faithful pulpit to this day. Uh, we're excited to hear that Dr. Thomas uh, is going to be succeeded by Dr. Neil Stewart as the new minister at First Pres Columbia, and we're delighted to have uh, such a historic pulpit in the capable hands of a reformed ministry. Uh, the history of the church is closely tied to the history of the city. The church's forefathers first met in the state house and then later built uh, a, a simple wooden building. Uh, the sanctuary built in 1853 uh, and the graveyard and the spire of the church, once the tallest in Columbia, are a famous beacon to the Columbia skyline. Uh, within Columbia, there was also famously uh, the Columbia Theological Seminary. Uh, Columbia Seminary was a faithful Southern Reformed institution uh, which served the, the old PCUS for many years. Uh, Columbia Seminary also had a sister institution which for many years was led by uh, Presbyterians known as the University of South Carolina. And there's a picture of the horseshoe. Uh, James Henley Thornwell serves this institution as well as Columbia Seminary during his ministry in 
Columbia. Now, if you move out of the low country and then you move further back up into the back country, uh, you'll see a wonderful picture here of the Bethel Church in York County. York County is still the most Presbyterian in South Carolina. Uh, this church dates back to 1764 and is an expression of Presbyterianism. Like a lot of churches, like Antioch, it has an old cemetery, and you'll find veterans and pioneers uh, and farmers and regular folk buried within there. Uh, this congregation is now 250 years old. If you keep moving back into the back country, you'll find other Presbyterian expressions like Erskine College and Seminary. The seminary was founded in 1837 uh, as the graduate school of Erskine College, a liberal arts college which was established in 1839 to serve the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, another Presbyterian denomination with Scottish roots fixed here in South Carolina. If you keep moving back into the upcountry, you come to places like the Old Stone Church, uh, which is in the greater Clemson area. A small group of Presbyterians applied uh, to the South Carolina Presbytery you know, on 13 October 1789 and formed the Hopewell Church. Uh, the Andrew Pickens family was famously associated with this church, and like lots of little old stone churches, this was a simple Protestant meeting place uh, which became the center of a community learning life and family. Uh, the Fairview Church is another expression. Uh, and if, if you haven't been to the Fairview Church, I would strongly urge you to. This is a beautiful church, still thriving. This is, in my opinion, the oldest Christian church in Greenville County. The, the Baptists have a different interpretation. Um, Fairview Church was established in the fall of 1786 by Revolutionary War veterans who pulled together the bounty lands that were given to them for their service uh, to the nation. The Payden family famously associated with this church. There still are Payden serving on the session of Fairview Church for ten generations. And uh, this is now pastored by Jonathan Williams and is a faithful PCA church within our region. And then that brings me to your family tree. And uh, this kind of is the, the, the story of what I've told you theologically, culturally, all in one slide. You have the emergence of Christianity in the Roman uh, Empire. You have British Christianity. You have the Church of Scotland. You have Celtic Christianity. You have uh, the Ulster uh, Scots settlement. You have the migration to North America. You have Waxhall Church, you have Nazareth Church, you have Fairview Church, and then you have Antioch Church. Um, what is the lesson of this? Well, the lesson is God is sovereign over our history, particularly the people and places that he takes us. The lesson is that God has used Antioch in remarkable ways to serve a people. I think I was talking to Pastor Groff last night. I think the church has had several times moments in its history, not unlike what it's going through right now, where God is in an, in an extraordinary way revitalizing and reforming the church, and it's, it's putting forth fruit and bearing new expressions of God's goodness and grace. Um, God gives you a history for a reason, and I think one of the reasons he gives you a, a history is he wants you to know that he has always been with you and your people. And while sometimes our history is great, and sometimes our history is lean, our God is always great. And my hope is that Antioch, in thinking back to its past, will see the greatness of the living God 
and will appreciate his goodness for the years to come. This concludes my address. I'm happy to take questions if anybody has some. Bill. Been the controversy over Isaac White's book. <laughs> I think there would have been several. Um, I think the, the philosophical controversy would have been over adapting and modernizing the language of the Psalms. I think there was a theological concern that he would have, in his abridgment, might have um, reduced some of the language of the Psalms. I'm sure music was a part of it as well, Bill. Um, I, and I think another factor would have been simply uh, new expressions of, of worship and faith that were alien to a self-reliant and perhaps self-righteous people. exclusive psalmody through the 1920s and I do think there was theological tension by the paraphrases great question anybody else want to venture into the into offering a question y'all are extraordinary to come out on a Saturday morning and listen to this and I'm honored to be able to present this to you uh, I hope this will be a blessing to you or to any who may watch it and thank you for coming out today. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.